Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I'm not sure what time it is where you are listening from, but hello and welcome to the Sabbath School Commentary Podcast that is made available to you by the Personal Ministries Department of the North New South Wales Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, if this is your first time listening, I would like to welcome you to this podcast. If you're a regular listener, I'd like to say welcome back. It's good to have you. Now, today we're going to delve into lesson 12 of our adult quarterly Sabbath school lesson study entitled A Message Worth Sharing. If you are new to this podcast, the Seventh-day Adventist Church publishes a quarterly lesson guide of about 13 lessons that members all around the world study together. For the last 12 weeks, we've been studying the topic, Making Friends for God, The Joy of Sharing God's Mission. If you want to find out more about this week's lesson or past and future lessons, you can go to ssnet.org for more information. I'm going to repeat that again. It's ssnet.org for more information. Now, before we actually start with the lesson study, I would like to invite you to uh, pray with me as we start. Our gracious Father, we come to you, Lord, and we say thank you for this day. Thank you that we can be here. I pray, Lord, that you'll be with us now. I pray for your spirit, Lord, to be amongst us, the same spirit that was there with your prophets, the same spirit that revealed and inspired this message, Lord. I pray that that same spirit would illuminate our hearts to understand this message, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would be with each of the listeners, that you'll be with me as I present. Lord, I pray that we would understand this message, not just theologically uh, what it means to us, but also existentially. What does it mean for our lives living in 2020? I pray that you'll be with us now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this week, our central concern in this lesson study will be to look at the content of the message that we will be sharing. And it strikes at the heart or at the core of the Advent message. Before we jump into this lesson, I'd like to maybe give a very brief framework that would give us a bit of context to Revelation chapter 14, where we find our message. Now, the Seventh-day Adventist Church finds its identity, calling, and message in prophecy, specifically the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. You can think of it in a sense that these two books are the distinctive frame that holds the picture of truth for Seventh-day Adventists. An easy way to remember this is by looking at three core chapters in Revelation, which gives context to what we're going to study uh, today. In Revelation chapter 10, we see that the content or the main uh, focus in Revelation chapter 10 speaks about the mission of the church, the mission of the church. And in this chapter, John the Revelator um, kind of prophesies a movement that will arise that will prophesy about the eternal gospel and the nearing second advent. In Revelation chapter 12, it speaks about the distinguishing marks of the remnant movement. And from scripture, we can see that the, the, that movement or those remnant will be those who will be called by God according to prophecy, who will take his message to the world. This remnant um, will be those that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then the last pillar in this framework in Revelation chapter 14 speaks about the message of the remnant 
movement, the message that the remnant movement will be proclaiming. So to kind of recap and just have a bit of context of Revelation chapter 14, Revelation chapter 10 speaks about the mission of God's remnant movement, speaking about the mission that they will go and proclaim a specific message. Revelation chapter 12 helps us to understand the distinguishing marks of the remnant movement. And then Revelation 14 speaks about the message of God's remnant movement. So Revelation 10, mission. Revelation 12, marks. And Revelation 14, message. Today we're going to spend some time in Revelation chapter 14, which speaks about the message that is worth sharing to the world. Revelation chapter 14, the message worth sharing to the world. Now, some of you might might ask the question, why is this important to share this message? Why should we share this? Well, the first thing is, is that it's been prophesied that God's people will share it. But scripture actually answers that and says, God will have a, a people that will be so on fire about this message because uh, about this mission, because this message has so profoundly changed their own lives. This message is at its core about Jesus Christ and his marvelous grace towards us. This message is about a God that became man who died for our sins, your sins, my sins, and resurrected again and lives now forevermore. It speaks to his power to save us from the penalty of sin. Sometimes we refer to that as justification. The same way for him to save us from the power of sin. Sometimes we call that sanctification. And then eventually for him to come and save us from the presence of sin. Sometimes that is referred to as glorification. So this message is the most beautiful and profound message that you will ever encounter. And we are massively privileged as God's remnant people to go out and share this this message of life and love with everybody else. So let's try and figure out what is the Bible telling us? What is this message all about? What is the content of this message? We know that the the, the central concern is about Jesus, but let's dive a bit more into it. So let's look at what Revelation chapter 14 is all about. Now, once again, I want to give a bit of context because actually the whole book of Revelation is about Jesus Christ. There's so much happening in the book of Revelation. There's so much Uh, at play there's so many symbolisms and so many things that many times we can get distracted by these things but if you open your bible and go to revelation chapter 1 verse 1 it actually gives us the key to unlock lots about the book of revelation so if you have your bibles i would like you to turn there with me to revelation chapter 1 verse 1 and the opening lines of the book actually clearly tells us what the book of revelation is about it says The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his bondservants things which must soon take place. He sent it and communicated it by his angel to his servant John. So this book is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book basically just reveals Jesus and how he he will operate in the last days. That's what the book is about. How Jesus operates in the last days. It's about him, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's the same with the revelation uh, in Revelation chapter 14. The message of Revelation chapter 14 is about Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bible handy, I would like you now to turn to Revelation chapter 14, which will be the, the main passage that we'll discuss today. Revelation chapter 14. Now we will be focusing on the middle part of this chapter, which is about the message. But I'd like to maybe even draw your attention just for a few moments to the sections right before 
and after it, once again, just to give us a bit of context. Now, if you go and read Revelation chapter 14, verse 1 to 5, you will see that the first five verses describe the remnant movement of God far above the conflicts and the trials of this earth. They're already living in heaven with Jesus forever. And then the last eight verses, verse 14 to 20, we see John describing the second coming of Christ um, and the earth's final harvest. So you can kind of see the first part speaks about the saints already in heaven. And the second part, or the last part, rather, the third part, speaking about how God will come then, uh, come for them. So we see the middle part is basically the, the bridge between these two. The middle section, verse 6 to 12, is strategically placed between these two as something as a link between these two realities. The reality of being with God and the reality of God coming to, re, to, to take us home. Now let's delve, delve into this section. And I'm going to read it in your hearing, Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 to 12, and then we'll look at some key elements. So reading Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 to 12. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second, followed, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on its forehead. Or on its hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up, goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is the call of the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God. And their faith in Jesus. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds indeed follow them. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this section. And we won't have a time to go in depth into every little corner of curiosity. But let's maybe just briefly look at some important elements of the three angels message, as it is called. Firstly, in verse six. There is a call to fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. In the original language, the Greek language, the word for fear is the word phobeo, which we get our English word from phobia from. So in the original, it, it's not necessarily just used in the context of fear or being afraid or having a phobia, but rather it can be used in the context of having reverence for or respect for something. So when this verse calls us to fear God, it is not saying be fearful of God, but be respectful and have reverence for God, understanding who he is and understand, understand who you are. It conveys the thought of absolute loyalty to God, that he is truly God and almost a full surrender to its will. 
in a sense, it speaks primarily to the attitude of mind that we have, that which should be God-centered rather than self-centered. Now, if you think about the main antagonist in the book of Revelation, and even in the whole of Scripture, Satan or the dragon, the beast, he is at the very, at the very core self-centered. If you have your Bibles, I would recommend that you go to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, uh, verse 12 to 14. It actually captures the internal motivation that drove Satan's action. It actually gives us a glimpse into his, his inner dialogue in a sense. Revelation chapter 14, I'll read it to you. Revelation, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 14, verse 12. It says, how are you fallen from heaven, O Morning star, son of the dawn. Say, how is this possible? You, Lucifer, the, the perfect one. You have been cut down to the ground, a destroyer of nations. And now it gets to the internal motivation. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the, to the heavens. I will raise my, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend Above the tops of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. From this, we can see that his self-centeredness, his self-obsession was at the core of his ultimate disrespect for God. So the first angel's message starts off firstly to say, make God the center of your life. Make sure that he is at the core of your life. In an age of materialism, consumerism, and individualism, we are constantly bombarded with messages all over the place that it's all about me, me, me. These secular views that have made it all about you as the center is the thing that drives our, our, our culture. But the first angel's message tells us that we should be focusing on God and make sure that, that God is at the center. The first message uh, that God gives us tells us that that we should turn away from this tyranny of self-centeredness to the peace and salvation and service that can only be found in God. So the first element in the first angel's message is to fear God, which means to respect him. The second thing uh, and the next logical step that follows out of fearing God is giving glory to God. There is this beautiful connection between these two elements. Fearing God it speaks to our attitudes and giving glory to God speaks about our actions. I'm going to say that again. Fearing God speaks to our attitude towards God. Giving glory to God speaks about our actions towards God. Fearing God has to do with what we think and giving glory to God has to do with what we do. Fearing God deals with the inner commitments that we have made to crown God as truly the king in our lives and let him reign there. Giving glory to God deals with how those inner convictions translate into a lifestyle that demonstrate that God is ruling in our lives. Paul actually gives a very profound and easy way to understand this concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He writes um, in this passage, he says, Therefore, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So when our hearts are submitted to God, and he reigns, our desires is to give him glory to every, in every aspect of our lives. From our diet to what we discuss with our friends, from our evangelism plans to our entertainment options, we will all, all of that will be committed to him. 
So the first first uh, uh, axiom of the first angel's message is to fear God. What is our attitude towards God? And and you might ask yourself, what is my attitude towards God? Am I placing him first? Is he truly the king of my life? Is he truly the, the main principal uh, um, uh, subject in my life? The second thing, giving glory to God, speaks about the action. Does my actions reveal uh, that I'm giving glory to God? And then the, the next axiom in the first angel's message is this, this idea of an end-time judgment. The passage continues and shows that this story is moving somewhere. And it reads, and I'm going to read it again, Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. This section indicates that there will be a resolution to the cosmic conflict between good and evil, light and darkness, God and Satan. This message points to the fact that there will, that there will come a time where the battle will be over and the controversy will be settled. At this point in the universe, we will see that God is both loving and righteous and that his character has always been the one of love. The point of the judgment is to liberate those that have been oppressed by Satan and sin. And if you think back to the three main phases of salvation that I mentioned earlier, Jesus comes to save us from the penalty of sin, justification, the power of sin, sanctification, and eventually the presence of sin, glorification. This then inevitably leads and necessitates some form of judgment. The judgment is not bad news. Many times we view judgment as bad news, but judgment is good news for us because it means that the righteous and the wise judge will make judgment in favor for us. He will be there favoring us because he is on our side. There's also another element of judgment is that judgment will reveal fully the characters of all those involved. It will show us truly who God is a loving, compassionate, and just God, and will truly show us who Satan really is, selfish, deceptive, and the arch enemy to all that is good. So in the judgment, all wrongs will be made right. Righteousness will triumph over evil, and the powers of darkness will be defeated, and the injustice will be consumed and, and, and um, taken to its final end. That is a good news for us. That is good news for us that are with God. Judgment isn't a bad thing. And so this passage tells us that we should fear God, number one, that we should give glory to God, number two, and that these things relate to judgment, that what we think and what we um, do ha will have a bearing on the judgment. And if we truly worship God and, and fear God and we are on God's side, judgment will be favor favorable to us because we will be judged on Christ's merits. He will look at us and he will see Christ. But if we are not worshiping God, if we are not fearing God, if we are not glorifying God, we stand in front of the judgment by ourselves and God looks at us and our sinful God that we are wearing. Now, the fourth element to the first angel's message is this idea of worship to the creator. That's the last element in this first uh, message. And it, this, this idea of worshiping him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water is actually a direct quotation from the book of Genesis. And it is a clarion call to worship the creator at a time when most of the scientific world has rejected the origin of the world from a theistic perspective. Creation speaks to so many beautiful existential 
um, identities within us and, and, and core values within us. It speaks to uh, this idea that God sees value in us. It speaks to this idea that we have worth in him. The creation narrative tells us that we are not here by mere chance, as Darwinian evolution would make us believe, but, but we are here by choice, specifically God's choice. So creation also speaks to the fact that we are not alone in the universe, that they, that this world isn't just about atoms and molecules, that it isn't just a material universe, but that there is more to this material reality, a spiritual sphere that is deeply embedded in us as human beings. We need to realize this fact that we are not merely material beings, but we are also spiritual beings made to worship God. And creation is uh, is at the heart of true worship, actually. And even to the Seventh-day Sabbath, it, it establishes creation in the eternal sign of God's creative authority. And there's actually a deep connection between the Sabbath and creation, redemption, and return of Jesus. I'd like to maybe tease that out a little bit. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to come with me to the first giving of the moral law, um, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 and verse, we'll start in verse 8. If you have your Bibles, um, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8. It is the commandment um, to uh, to keep the Sabbath. And, I, and there's something very curious to this verse. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now remember the Sabbath day was instituted at creation. That's where we get it from. And so it says, which you must not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter, your maidservant or your, ma- your manservant or your maidservant or your livestock or the foreigner within your gates. And then it gives the reason why we must keep the Sabbath. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them, but on the seventh day he rested. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Now, there's a few things that I want to quickly mention within this verse. Firstly, this verse starts off with remember the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day. Now, there's various ways that some people have interpreted. Some people have interpreted this idea of remembering to say, well, people are going to forget this one commandment. I, I personally don't think that that is the reason. I think that People have forgotten all of the Ten Commandments or significant portion of the Ten Commandments. Um, so I don't think that's necessarily the reason. Others have interpreted this, this remembers to say, remember why we are keeping this. And actually, here it is telling us why we're remembering. And I think that's actually key to it. What is happening here is that Moses is is um, taking this Ten Commandments to, to Israel, who is basically, a, basically a, a nation that has forgotten who God truly is. And God is... Is, is helping them to get back this biblical paradigm, this, this worldview that God is the true creator God. And so he's saying, remember your roots, remember your humanness, remember where you came from, remember that you were created by this creator God, remember Genesis 1 and remember Genesis 2, remember that this day is a day to remember that. And the reason that we should keep the Sabbath is that it's a day to remember where we came from. It helps us to remember the past, where we came from, where's our identity rooted in, that we are creatures created by a loving creator so we should remember that now what's interesting about this verse in verse 11 is that it says for in six days the lord now that word lord in my bible is capitalized and i would presume that it is capitalized in your version as well 
The reason that it would be capitalized is that word in the original language, in the Hebrew, is actually what they call a tetragrammaton. It's actually the word Yahweh. And sometimes the Jews would, would substitute this word with the word, word Adonai. It's the word that is the personal name of God. Now, interestingly enough, if you go to Genesis chapter 1, you won't see this word Lord there. You won't see this word capitalized. You will only see the word God. So in Genesis chapter 1, the first creation narrative, it speaks constantly of God said and God saw and God pronounced and God blessed. It's the word Elohim. And, and it constantly speaks about this big, powerful deity. But there's a shift in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 to be specific, where we see that it it moves to this idea of the Lord God. Um, the word Lord there is the word Yahweh. It, it, it's translated, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. It's the, the name that God spoke to Moses when Moses said, who shall I say have sent me? And he says, say to them, I am who I am. It's the personal name of God. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that the narrative, the second narrative um, of, of the creation story speaks about this God that is Lord God. It is this idea of a more intimate God. In Genesis 1, we see this powerful God speaking and it happens. In Genesis 2, we see a very personal God coming and forming Adam from the dust of the ground and giving him the kiss of life. We see a more personal side of this God. Now, so Genesis 1 and 2 gives us these two dimensions of God, powerful and personal. In this uh, verse, in Genesis verse, uh, in, excuse me, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11, Moses doesn't use the word Elohim or Yahweh Elohim. He just uses the word Lord, Yahweh. So he's saying, remember, this personal God is your creator. He is close to you. So when you remember the Sabbath day, when you hold the Sabbath day, you are reminded that this, this creator is your creator. Not the creator per se, but your creator. Now, if you go to the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy chapter 5, you'll see something interesting. Now, Deuteronomy, the word Deuteronomy comes from a juxtaposition of two words, actually. Deutros, which meaning second, and nomos, meaning law. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. And um, Moses gave this law to the Israelites, the second generation of Israelites, um, just before they went into the promised land. And so he gives them the second law. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you were Moses, would you change the law? Would you alter it in any way? You would say, no, obviously not. It's written in stone. It's unalterable. But yet we see a change here. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 12, we read, it says, observe the Sabbath day. Not remember, but observe. That observe is a, a kind of celebration, like you would celebrate your birthday. It's a special occasion. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On which you must not do any work, neither you nor your daughter nor your son, nor your manservant or your maidservant, nor your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock, nor the foreigner within your gates, so that your manservant or your maidservant may rest as you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of out there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath Day. Yeah, he says the reason that the Lord commanded you to keep the Sabbath day is to remember that you were a slave in Egypt. The first time in Exodus, God is saying to them, remember. They, they were very aware that they had just been liberated from Egypt. God didn't have to remind them 
to rem- that they were slaves in Egypt. They just came out of this. So God says, I need you to, for you to remember that you are created by God, that I am your creator, not these pagan Egyptian gods, but that I am your creator, your personal creator. But then in Deuteronomy, the second generation have forgotten because they grew up in the desert. They had always been in the desert. They have never been to Egypt. And now God says, but now I need you to remember that I am your redeemer. So the Sabbath becomes this beautiful symbol, weekly symbol that reminds us of our past, where we came from. We came from a loving creator's hand. But it also reminds us of our present, that we are saved by him. He is not only our creator, but also our redeemer. Now, what's interesting, if you go to the book of Hebrews, there's a very strong connection of the Sabbath that brings these two ideas together. I want to read that to you. Hebrews chapter four. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn there with me. Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter four. And it reads as follows. It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. So God made a promise that, that, that his people will enter his rest. The, the author continues, let us be careful that none of you will be deemed to have fallen short of it. For all we also have received the good news just as they did, speaking about the, Egypt, uh, about the Israelites. But the message they heard was of no value to them, since they did not share the faith of those who comprehended it. Now we have believed to enter that rest. The author is saying that, that we that have believed in Jesus, we will enter into that rest. And he's going to explain a bit more about what this rest is. As for others, as it is said, as God has said, I swore on my oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For some way he has spoken about the seventh day in this manner. On the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. So he's taking it back to creation. And again, he says in the passage above, they shall never enter my rest. So what is happening here is that the author is using the Sabbath rest in creation as an archetypal rest, meaning a big rest, a big form of rest. And then he's using what what scholars sometimes call as typical and anti-typical rest. Typical rest is something like the rest that they would have from their wanderings going into the promised land. And then the anti-typical rest is the one that stands in the place of that rest. Another way of understanding typical and anti-typical is that Jesus, or let me rather say that the lamb that was slaughtered in the Old Testament was the typical lamb, and Jesus is the anti-typical lamb, the one that stands in the place of that. And so that lamb represented the greater lamb that would come. The rest that, that the, the Israelites would have in the promised land merely showed towards the eternal rest that all of us would have in the new heavens and the new earth. And so reading from verse 6, it says, Since then it remains for some to enter into his rest, and since those who formerly heard the good news did not enter that rest because of their disobedience, God again designated a certain day and said, Today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as as was just stated, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter into that rest, so that no one will fall by following the same pattern of obedience. So this, this context in, Revela- in Hebrews speaks about the archetypal rest, the rest that is that all of these rests finds their root in and says that's, that's the, the rest in creation. 
But then there's the typical rest, the rest that these people would have received as they were out of bondage, out of Egypt, and went to the promised land. And then the anti-typical rest is the new heavens and the new earth. So to bring that together, if you may be confused, let me put it in this way. The weekly Sabbath rest, the seventh day, the Saturday as we come into that rest, is a weekly reminder to make us look back at creation and say that we have been created by a loving creator. It makes us look at the present to say that we've also been liberated by the same creator. So this creator is not merely our creator, but he's also our redeemer. But this Sabbath, this weekly Sabbath, makes us look forward to this coming king that is going to take us into the eternal rest of his promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. So the the three angels' message, when it seeks about fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heavens and earth. It's speaking to this context that worship will center on a specific day because this this day is a symbol of the God that we worship, the God that is our creator, the God that our, it is our redeemer, and the God that is the soon coming king. That is powerful, powerful message that we can take to this world. So from these passages, we can see that the call of revelation to fear God and to worship him is deeply connected to worship and serving him uh, him who created and redeemed us. So, so we are very privileged to share this, this message to this world, to call them back to true worship of God. And that's what the second and third um, angel's message is actually about. I'm going to read the second angel's message a lot shorter than the first one in verse 8 of Revelation chapter 14. It says, another angel, a second followed the first one, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Babylon is a designation of of confusion, of the, the, the kingdom that is against Jerusalem, God's kingdom, the great. And she made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This is speaking about spiritual adultery, going off to a different uh, a God, going off to a different um, person that you have covenanted yourself with. This is using the metaphor of marriage. If you think about a marriage between a husband and a wife, they covenant with each other. They say, I will be your husband and, and the wife covenants, well, I will be your wife. The same way God has covenanted with us. God has says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And we covenant with God and say, God, you will be our God and we will be your people. And so this idea of sexual immorality is an adulterous uh, uh, an affair is when you're saying to God, well, I found another God. You're breaking covenant with God. So in the book of Revelation, the term of Babylon represents a false system of religion based on human works or man-made traditions or false doctrines. It exalts human beings and their self-righteousness above Jesus and his sinless life. It places the commands of human religious teachers above the commands of God. Babylon was at the center of idolatry, of sun worship, and false teaching of immorality of the soul. This false religion system had, had integrated so many of the ancient Babylonian re- religious practices into its worship that God's last message to our dying planet is to remove ourselves from that, to look at Jesus and him alone. It echoes the appeal that Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and that we should come out of her that we see in Revelation chapter 18. God has divinely raised up the Seventh-day Adventist church um, and, and the message of Christ in all its fullness to tell people about this. To exalt Jesus is to lift up him and everything that he taught. It is to proclaim that he is the only way to the truth, 
or let me rather say, he is the the only one that is the way, the truth, and the life, as we find in John chapter 14, verse 16. And so this call to uh, say that Babylon is fallen is to expose the errors of Babylon in contrast to the truth of Jesus. The next one is the third angel, and that's in Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. And it says, and another angel, a third followed, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead and on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured out in full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Revelation 14 describes here two different acts of worships then. We can see that that's at the core of this, of the three angels' message, the acts of worship. The worship of the creator or the worship of the beast. And these two acts of worship center around the day of worship, the true Sabbath, and a substitute or a counterfeit of the Sabbath. The Sabbath represents rest and assurance and security that we have in Christ as our creator, our redeemer, and our coming king. And the counterfeit day represents a human and a false substitute based on the human reasoning and man-made decrees. So you can think of it that this message is, is, is at its core about life and death, really, because it's calling us to worship the true God or a false God, worshiping and following a true system or a false system. And there is no middle ground. There is either you follow God or you, you don't. And, and, and this message is a message that this world desperately needs to hear. So here are some questions for reflection as we close the Sabbath school. How do the three angels' messages in Revelation 14 identify the essence of the Seventh-day Adventist church for you? If you had to summarize the essence of the Seventh-day Adventist church in the context of Revelation 14, how would you do that? I would encourage you to maybe take out your phone or a notepad and try and answer that question. How would you define the essence of the Seventh-day Adventist church in the context of Revelation 14? The next question I would like to ask you is, think about the Sabbath and the importance of what it represents. As we went through it, those passages, Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter um, 5, Hebrews chapter 4, Revelation chapter 14. Think about the Sabbath and what it represents. Um, and as we saw this week, the message contains the importance that God commands us that we should set apart one-seventh of our lives in order to remember him as our creator and our redeemer. What does that mean for you? How do you worship? Every week we are called to worship God. What does the Sabbath mean for you? How does this truth help you to understand the importance of the day and what it points towards? Once again, I would remind you or encourage you to take a notepad and take take a, a cell phone and type it on there. Maybe if you, you're listening this together with some friends or some family, discuss this question. What does the, the Sabbath point to and what does that mean for your life? And then the last question I'd like to leave you with is, how can we explain the idea of the fall of Babylon or the concept of the mark of the beast? In the most winsome way, if you had to share this message to people, not only that, that God is a beautiful God and that he is our creator and our redeemer and that we should worship the true God, but even 
the concept of the mark of the beast and the false way of worship, how can we share that with people in a winsome way? How can we present these truths in the least offensive way possible, in, in, in a way that they can still understand it, um, but not be offended by it? How can we share this message in the most winsome way? Thank you very much for listening to the Sabbath School podcast. We, we hope that you received a blessing out of it. It is indeed a beautiful message and a privilege for all of us as Seventh-day Adventists and Bible-believing Christians to share with the world. And I pray that all of you would, would truly understand and delve into this message uh, to, to not only understand it for yourself, but in order to share this message with the world. I pray that God's blessing will be over you. And um, I would invite you to close your eyes as I close the session in prayer. Gracious Father, we come to you and we say thank you, Lord, for your love and your mercy and your grace, Lord. Thank you for this beautiful message, Lord. We just pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand this message theologically, Lord, that we would be in tune with Scripture and, and, and with your word, that we would understand it existentially. What does it mean for me as an individual? What does it mean for my life? And Lord, that we would understand it missiologically. How can we share this with the world in the most winsome way, Lord? I pray that, that all of us as Christians, Lord, would be understand it on these three planes. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would lead and guide us in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.